0: Thank you, Atticus, thank you so much for leading us. Um, Hey, we're starting a new series tonight. Uh, Wow, Uh, tonight would be a great night to have your phone out for notes. It would be a great night to have your notebook open as we start this new series called Dwell. Uh, This series is coming out of all the places in scripture where God says, I will be with you. He says it over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, If you're here and you follow Jesus, this is the desire of God that you would be with him. If you're here and you don't follow Jesus, I'm super honored and glad that you'd be here. If you've ever been curious about what like life with Christ actually looks like after you start following him. It's not that we just like come up front, pray a prayer, check the box and just do whatever. Like there's actually life that Jesus offers to us. In fact, this idea of dwell. Uh, you're you're going to hear about this kind of every week. This is kind of the driving picture from Scripture. It's from Luke chapter 10. And it's this moment when Jesus has this interaction with, <clears throat> with Mary and Martha which you heard about last week, we talked about them. Uh, and, and, and in this instance, Martha is running around, distracted by all of life. Anyone distracted by all of life in the house today? Okay, right, human breathing person, got it. Um, like so much of life going on all around you. And Jesus doesn't look at her and say, hey, that's not important, don't do that ever. He says, hey, that's just second to what Mary's doing, which is being with me. And, and what's interesting is that Jesus says these words about dwelling with him, about being with him, about Mary being with him, he, he, she, he says these words to her. He says, one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that first thing. That means that before all of these other things, there's a first thing. It means before all of these other things that would disquiet us or distract us, there's this first thing, and it's to dwell with Jesus, to dwell with God. It's, if you want to write this down, it's experiencing life with God wherever you are. That's the idea of our series as we hop into Dwell. We're going to be rooted in Mark chapter 1 tonight. If you want to head there, uh, Atticus just read the kind of core text. We'll be kind of all up and down that passage. But while, while you're on your way, I wonder, anyone play sports kind of coming up? Anybody? I know that people did. I just want to hear, like, what you did. So anybody, just shout shout some soccer. soccer? Football. Football. Thank you. Okay, good. The proper pronunciation. What? What did you say? Hockey? Okay, great. Good. Great. Got it. Wrestling? Awesome what round net round net right the artist formerly known as spike ball i got corrected for that so many times it's round net i'm correct kip golfing hey a little couple golfers in here that's not a golf clap that's a real clap you can't do that um i'm sorry I'm playing with you, so I played I played if you can keep up with this, I played baseball, which is predictable. Um, I played basketball, which I was terrible at. I played football, which was hilarious, guys. I was like five foot four one hundred pounds dreams of as like a freshman in high school, like the made for TV movie picture in my head, not at all, dude. I got rocked by a dude that was like six four sophomore, two hundred and eighty pounds, and I was like. I was told to run laps, and they were like, never come back. And while running laps, I realized I liked running, so I jumped into cross country. That was great. Um, fit me a little bit better. Uh, and then I ended up moving into, into tennis. Um, I played in high school, which, as you can tell, totally made me a very popular person, right? High school, like high school tennis, known for, like, elevated status. It's incredible. Uh, I, I, I was a terrible person in high school. I was just bad. Um, I, once, I was so dedicated to this sport. That I once, this is not a joke, this, is, this really happened. You know how people up here can like tell stories in their lives sometimes? Uh, this isn't that, this isn't that. Uh, I'm kidding, we don't do that here, but that happens some places. Um, so I'm, I'm being honest with you. Uh, and, and, so, and so I, 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 I met with uh, my girlfriend at the time, keyword, um, and, uh, and I looked at her and I said, <laughs> I'll say your name, I said, Kim. <laughs> Sorry if that's your name. I, I said, Kim. I can only have one, I'm trying to figure out who to make eye contact with while I say this. Boom, found him. I, I can only have one love in my life, and that love is tennis. I said that straight to her face. Guys, don't do that. Don't do it. Women, if a man does it, do not be sad. You have avoided a problem. Um. Sorry, I'm sorry. This is just true. It happened. Uh, so I, I played, I played, I played tennis. I played tennis. My coach Andrew Gola played with Andy Roddick. If you know who that is, that was yeah. So he played. He played with Andy Roddick while Roddick was coming up uh, as a junior in Florida. Uh, fun fact about Andy Roddick as a junior in Florida: he was a terrible cheater. It's hilarious to me those stories. Um, but uh, Gola was great, and he was just a savage. I'll never forget after a four-hour clinic, I thought I was crushing. And he looks at me, who am I making eye contact with this time? Oh, perfect. Definitely you, Nye. Um, I'm kidding. Um, I'll, I'll never forget, he, he looks right at me and he says, Rudy, you have so much heart. You don't have a lot of skill, but you got a ton of heart. <laughs> and I just remember, guys, my life is really like this. Um, I remember looking at him and being like, it's like the equivalent of saying, good try, bud. Like, it's, it's great. I mean, I was getting offers from colleges, but he was just shutting me down. It was, it was great. I, I, did, um, I did have some bad habits. My grip was a little too Western. My, um, my my diet really wasn't that great. My footwork was more like I was an athlete from other sports, but not directly dedicated to tennis. And I just never, I never wanted to take the time to change them. You know how when you're like, just like, I can do a thing and I'm good at doing this thing if I keep doing the thing the way that I'm doing it, but there's a plateau to that. And if I'm going to get better, I'm going to have to change some stuff. But if I change some stuff, I'm not going to be as good as I am right now at it. But I know that my ceiling's a little bit higher. Do you know what I'm talking about? Any athletes in the room you had to make? those pivots and those changes and you're like it's like I forgot how to play this game or do this thing but now I actually know how to how to do a thing and and I'll never forget he he hit me with this quote once um because I was being really stubborn um again nose over eyes uh and 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 he looks at me and he says Rudy if nothing changes nothing changes I'm being like that is true Right? There were areas of my game that I wanted to see change, but I wasn't doing anything to change them. I wasn't because I knew that I'd take a step backwards, and, and, I'd, so, and I didn't want to do that, so I didn't change the way that I practiced, so it never really changed the way that I played. And while, while this might not be tennis for you, um, all of us have different areas of our life where we're like, I would like to see that change a little bit. Anybody? Like, like this area of my life, I'd like to see it shift. I wish I could see that area, that thing, that piece of my life. I just want to see it change a little bit. Yeah, often because of like pace of life in our culture because of the hurry of life in our day we really don't feel like it's worth it to slow down and change something without the risk of life or an opportunity or an experience passing us by it's like the formula one driver i got real into formula one guys recently um uh, it's like the formula one race car driver that doesn't take the pit stop because they're nervous that someone's going to pass them we functionally live that way worried about if someone, uh, if we slow down, what will happen if someone passes us by? We, we worry that if we slow down to change, then we'll lose more than we could possibly gain. And this line of thinking causes us to rationalize living exhausted. It's just the way that things are. I just need to live exhausted, so i got to get out there and keep up. And just like that race car driver, you and your car and your tires and your body and your life become wearisome, burdened, start to fall apart, and eventually run the risk of burning out or crashing. And often when it comes to following Jesus, the pace of daily life around us puts a pressure on us that causes us to rush instead of wait on the Lord, to sprint instead of sit daily with Jesus because we're afraid of what we might miss out on if we made space to be with Jesus, to dwell with him daily. A guy named Ronald Rollheiser called this way of thinking uh, pathological busyness. He said, it's not that we have anything against God or depth or spirit. Maybe we would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these things show up on our radar screens. He said, we are more busy sometimes than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested than other things than we are interested in Christ. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today to spiritual lives or to dwelling daily with Jesus. Michael Zigarelli did a survey of 20,000 Christians, and he identified this way of life in five movements. He said, it may be the case that Christians are one, assimilating to the culture of busyness around them, hurry around them, overload around them, which leads to two, God becoming more marginalized in their life, which leads to three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to four, Christians becoming even more weak and vulnerable to adopting to culture rather than historical Christian rhythms for life and how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness hurry and overload and this is the terrifying part then the cycle begins again we find ourselves ingrained in rhythms of life culture campus comparison of ourselves to others that are just imposed upon us it just feels like the habitual nature of life we're trapped in this rhythm that feels inescapable so we tolerate hurry because it doesn't feel like there's another option. We endure the low to medium state of chronic, I didn't say clinical, chronic anxiety with schedules that have no room for Christ in a pace that we know is unsustainable because it just doesn't feel like there's another option for life. It's like we live in a forest and all of life is a million birds chirping, 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 chirping all the time and we forget what a moment of silence would be like. I know that moment of silence would be refreshing for our souls, but if nothing changes, then nothing changes. The good news is that it doesn't have to be this way. When we look at the life of Jesus, the way of Jesus, we see a different way of life, a way in which we can experience life with God wherever we are, where we can dwell with him daily. You can experience life with him wherever you are. A way in which, to quote the words of Jesus himself, you can experience a life where your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You can come to him in your weakness and your weariness and actually find rest. You can come to the one who through his life, death, burial, and resurrection has rescued and saved you from your sin to enter you and give you eternal rest with God forever and assurance of salvation with him and actually taste and see some of that rest here now as you follow him and have life, experience life with him daily wherever you are if we're going to experience this life with God wherever we are we need to start by learning how to dwell with God and starting to dwell with God learns by starting to have you can write this down starting to have space dwelling starts with space set aside to be with Jesus the practice we are starting this series with is one that was practiced by Jesus and has been practiced by his followers ever since it is the practice of solitude solitude two quick things on this again i I told you we're we're gonna get after it and teaching pretty heavily tonight When I say solitude, the first thing some of you guys think is terrifying, right? Because what is the worst thing that could possibly happen? Leave me alone with my thoughts, right? Like that could be, that that might seem like a terrifying thing to you. And I hope that by the end of this, you would actually learn that it doesn't have to be. And that in solitude with Jesus, you're actually not alone. Um, Others of you might think conflict, right? With what I've said and what I'm saying. Rudy, didn't you just say we're going to go away to a fall retreat this last weekend? In part so we can be with each other, and that we're going to go to this conference so that we can be with each other and other people. And haven't you told us like every week that we should join a connection group where we would be with each other, right? Like so. So now you're saying now get alone, right? It feels contradictory. Um, I can see how you could see attention, but in reality, solitude and community aren't in conflict. They actually complement one another. What's interesting is that the way of Jesus leads us to practice both. There are practices in the way of Jesus that lead us to engaging with others and engagement and activity. And there are practices that actually lead to abstention, stepping away, getting away from other people and places for the experience of solitude. See, if we're only together, all, uh, all of the time then we actually become codependent on one another and never experience interdependency in our following of Jesus but if you're only solitude all the time then you experience independence and you never experience interdependence as you follow Jesus together in Madison following Jesus doesn't lead us to one or the other community or solitude it leads us to both and and that's what we're emphasizing tonight though we're just camping out on solitude which brings me to our first question what Is it? Like, what actually is it? Is it just being alone? Is that all that it is? Um, We need to just establish this from the front end. Solitude, you read this out, solitude is not loneliness. In fact, solitude, I would argue, is an attack on the loneliness that our culture around us fosters. Because of the hurry that we live in, it is easier than ever to live and feel alone. A loneliness is an epidemic. There was actually a paper written on it that was just produced that said it is like one of the most dangerous things that can be experienced right now. It was wild to see this paper come out. But it, it, solitude is an, an, an attack on this loneliness A solution for loneliness, by the way, should be the technology that we have, but phones are a failed substitute for face-to-face connection. We are super connected through our phones, socials, and snap, but functionally we feel more separate and disconnected as a generation than almost any other generation in modern time because life moves too fast for deep relationship with one another. So we find ourselves in ingrained rhythms that leave most people feeling like they're doing a ton and yet feel very alone. Solitude is the practice of stopping and getting out of and being free from those ingrained rhythms and habits of hurry that cause us to be isolated and establish a rhythm of slowing down your life to be with Christ. I used to hear people say something like, put your money where your mouth is, and I'm telling you tonight to put your calendar where your mouth is. The money seems more expendable at this point than time. Slowing down for solitude is putting your calendar where your mouth is. It's not just saying, I wish I could spend more time with Jesus, because we know that if we had more time, we'd just find other things to fill it out, fill it with, because if nothing changes, nothing changes. Slowing down for solitude to dwell with Jesus, to experience life with God wherever we are, is us saying we will escape the habit of hurry ingrained in our culture that is crushing our souls. So, note takers, here's what solitude does. Solitude strengthens us when we're weak. Solitude in and of itself is not a weakness, it is a strength. Solitude strengthens us and it strengthens us in at least two specific ways that we're gonna see in Mark chapter one. Solitude strengthens us to know and it strengthens us to go. And we need look no further for an example of this in the very life of Jesus in Mark chapter one. It's interesting to note that you can't point to a ton of places where Jesus teaches on solitude. You you see it come up in his teaching. He says it on the Sermon on the Mount that when you go to pray, shut yourself away in your room uh, so that you would be alone with the Father because if other people see that or you make that evident in front of other people, you'll receive your reward then and not from your Father who is in heaven. He emphasizes solitude is a beautiful thing, but, but what's interesting about solitude is it is more clearly seen in the recorded actions and activities and lifestyle of Jesus. We see Jesus emphasize solitude not only in what he says, but actually in the way that he lives. And more than 20 times across the Gospels, we see Jesus actively choose to practice solitude. And one of those times, it says he did it a lot. So we don't know how many times he did it, we just know that it was as regular enough of a rhythm for people who looked at him to say, that was a big part of Jesus' life. He got away way to be with the Father that he was with and that he knows, and to go with the Father as he was going from town to town to town to town. In nine of those instances actually happened in Mark. Now Mark is called the immediately gospel and it's really interesting that in the most rushed gospel account, it seems critically important to the author to depict Jesus as often slowing down to practice solitude. We see it from the beginning of the account. Look at uh, chapter one, verses 12 and 13. Right after Jesus is baptized, the voice of God pierces through the sky and says, this is my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. We'll just say Pretty dope moment in the life of Jesus, in the history of the region. Uh, But here's what happens next. Immediately, the spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. Okay, right after this baptism, right after the literal voice of God affirms, this is the Savior, the Son of God. Jesus doesn't go out on a speaking tour, and he doesn't go write a book, and he doesn't go start a gathering. He doesn't even go start his itinerant ministry yet. He goes straight to the wilderness. He goes straight into solitude. He's led by the Spirit for 40 days into solitude. Almost a month and a half, Jesus just disappears. He's gone. That should have been the platform that he started everything from, God's voice literally breaking into reality. But Jesus instead slows his ministry down to go into the wilderness for solitude, to be alone with the Father. If you have a Bible, I want you to look at that verse uh, that, and, and the way that it says that your word, you might have it translated as wilderness or desert or deserted place. Because this word is really interesting. In the original language, it's eramos. Can you say that with me? Eremos. Aramos. Okay, you're a Greek scholar now. Congratulations. That's all it takes. Um, it can mean uh, desert, wilderness, deserted place, solitary place, lonely place, or quiet place. Okay, Jesus begins his three years of ministry leading up to the cross where he will die for sin, and then the empty tomb where he will resurrect for our eternal life as we trust in him as Lord and Savior. He begins that in the quiet place. He begins that with a practice of solitude. And it's odd... Because it's there that, as we read in verse 13, he's tempted by the devil. I like what a guy says about this. He acknowledges that if you've been reading the Bible from Genesis to Mark, you understand that Jesus has to go toe to toe with the devil. From Genesis chapter 3, someone's got to crush the head of the serpent that brought the curse that inv- invoked sin that has actually affected the entirety of the world. Evil has to be defeated. Jesus has to be the one to do it. It's got to happen. But what's interesting, why why do you think why does it happen in the wilderness? As you read the Bible, you should pay attention to to details like this. For years, this didn't make any sense to me because I thought the deserted place, that the wilderness, the solitary place, I thought that was a place of weakness. I thought that was like a moment of like, ain't that like the devil? coming me in my weakness at the end of a long day, a long week when I'm hungry or I'm hangry, exhausted and alone. Ain't that like him to come at me when I'm alone? But what if that's not what's actually happening in our text? What if Jesus is modeling for us a solitude that isn't a practice that makes us weak, but a practice that gives us strength? Like the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness to go toe-to-toe with the devil after a month and a half of fasting and prayer in solitude. And Jesus isn't in a valley of weakness. He's at a pinnacle of strength. Goes toe-to-toe with Satan, comes out unscathed. Solitude leads to our strength. Over and over we see Jesus model a return to the Eramos, to the wilderness, to a place of solitude where he can be alone with his Father, where he can be with the one who knows him and the one that he knows. This isn't, by the way, where this ends. The rest of Mark 1 actually touches on the Eramos multiple times. Mark 1 is basically a breakdown of the first day of Jesus' ministry. He first calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John to be his disciples. He goes and teaches in the synagogue with authority. He casts out a demon. He uh, confronts people. He heals Peter's mother-in-law and then anyone else in Capernaum that comes to him from the early morning to the late night. We're going to call that a pretty good first day of ministry. right? We're going to call that a pretty good first day on the job for Jesus. Okay. So what is Jesus going to do on the morning of his second day? I would have liked to sleep in. Personally, I plan on doing that tomorrow. Um, Mark one thirty-five gives us our answer. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, got up and went out and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Jesus wakes up on day two of his public ministry. And deliberately goes to a deserted place, which you Greek scholars might be able to guess is the same word seen earlier in Mark. Jesus spent 40 days in the Eremos, and after one day of ministry, Jesus goes right back. This time, not for 40 days, but just for a few hours, just for the morning. He gets up so he can dwell with his father, so he can slow down to practice solitude. See, practicing solitude isn't just this one-time thing that you do. It is rhythmic. It is daily. It is a way of life because it's the way of Jesus that we would go to be alone with the father. But the story's not over. Simon and his companions search for him. They found him and they said, everyone's looking for you. I love this. Simon Peter is trying to climb the the like corporate ladder of ministry in Capernaum. He's basically saying, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. You're about to blow up. Everybody caught the healing tour that you went on on Snap last night, and they're coming from house to house to find you in the whole town. GQ Israel just hit you up, short short list for godliest man alive, right? We're going to start Capernaum Church. We're going to blow this up. Jesus, you're the next big thing. Peter looked at Jesus and saw an opportunity. Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. Let's give you to him. Here's what Jesus says, verse 38. He said to them, actually, I'm adding the actually, sorry. Um, He said, let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. Could you imagine having so much clarity on your life and your purpose that you were able to say, this is why I. Jesus walks out of time with the Father and looks at Peter, who's saying, let's go blow it up in Capernaum. Let's get comfortable and make it big in this city. And he looks at him and says, no, this is why I have come. Peter is experiencing what so many of us do. He is inebriated with the idea of success. He is drunk on the potential of what it would look like for him to use Jesus to get what he wants. Peter needed the sobriety of solitude. Jesus, however, speaks with strength and clarity. No, Peter, we can't stay here. We got to go to the other places where I'm not known that I might continue to preach about the coming of the kingdom of God. This is why I came. Jesus knew what to say yes to, which is as equally important as knowing what to say no to. Because he had gotten away to practice solitude, to be with the Father, to slow down, to be with Him. He comes out strengthened, He knows who He's been with, and He knows what to do. Yes, I realize this is the Son of God who lived a perfect life. He is also modeling for the people that are following Him how to live a life in following Him, which leads him to say, We need to go to the other towns. Solitude is strengthening. Jesus comes out and models, like, I've been with the Father, I've been with the one who knows me, and I know him. I'm his, he's mine. I have strength in knowing him, and now I've got strength to going with him. He's not going on his own, he's going with him. He knows I'm going to practice solitude in that city as well, because just as much as I'm modeling it here, I'm going to model it there as well. I love this because it shows us something we, specifically this room, desperately needs to be reminded of regularly, that being with God always proceeds doing anything for him. Jesus models this for us in his very life, that before he goes and preaches in other towns, before he brings the good news to other towns, before he heals, ministers, cares, shepherds, leads, anything, he has a practice of being with the Father. Jesus models life with God wherever we are. He dwells with his Father in solitude and the Aramas, and then he goes. Here's why I think it's crucial for this room. I have watched men and women on college campuses for the last 14 years get excited about doing things for God while neglecting to be with God. And over and over, no matter how much we talked about the necessity of solitude, the need to be strengthened by knowing the Father and going with the Father, no matter how much we talked about that, about making space to dwell with God daily, there are always moments where people simply grow exhausted. And in that exhaust, they grow angry angry with God and there's these moments where they say, God, I did all this stuff for you. And what if his gentle invitation and correction might be, yes, and the whole time I wanted you to do all that stuff with me, not for me. Coming off fall retreat, almost 50 of you said you want to share the gospel with someone. I think that's incredible. I thank God for that. And seeing that didn't make me think, oh, we need to change the message on Thursday to be about how to share the gospel. It gave me confidence that when we landed on the teaching schedule months ago, God was preparing us to talk about the exact right thing because the worst thing that I could do for you, Salt Company, would be to teach you how to talk about God without teaching you how essential it is to first dwell with him. Because when you're with him, when you make space to dwell with him daily, talking about him with others will come so naturally to you. Because you're just seeing how beautiful and how good and how gracious and how kind and how merciful and how wonderful he is day after day, morning after morning. You become enamored with him as you spend time with him, as you dwell with him, as you experience life with God. Wherever you are, you actually get to share the good news of life with God wherever you go. It's an incredible Realities. We're with him regularly. We will share with others who he is because of how wonderful we find him to be day after day. And in just this chapter of Mark, we see Jesus model a practice of solitude that leads to strength in knowing and strength in going. So I wonder for us, what sort of strength waits for us in slowing down for solitude and getting alone with God and dwelling with him in scripture and prayer that we actually need to follow Jesus in? I would go so far as to join in the voices of so many people over the last 2,000 years who would say that solitude is the starting place of dwelling with God, of experiencing life with God, that it is necessary to experience and know this life with him. And it will change your life. Like I remember uh, a night in Pennsylvania where I was uh, just a few years ago uh, where my wife Molly and I, uh, we're in a room, uh, in, in our room. It was right before we we're going to bed. It had actually been a brutal couple of weeks, really difficult for a few reasons. Um, and I'll never forget this. Like, she just looks over at me before we go to sleep, and she looks over at me, and, and she, she says this. I am just so looking forward to being with Jesus tomorrow morning. Like in the midst of all of it, she knew that the place she could retreat to, that she could go to, to know the one who called her his and to to look at the one and to go with him is the one who was Christ himself. I'm just looking forward to being with Jesus tomorrow morning. I wonder, I just wonder if you've ever felt that. Like If you know how God uses us slowing down for solitude, slowing down to meet with him through prayer and scripture, slowing down to meet with him in a quiet place to strengthen us. When someone lies about you, hurts you, or betrays you, you feel devastated and weak. You start to believe the lies that rattle around in your mind that actually in that quiet place, in that solitude, you would experience the sobriety and clarity that comes from seeing the one who knows you and seeing the God that you know as you feel devastated by the hurry that you live in, you slow down to meet with Jesus, and, and, and you uh, counter hurry with solitude, you feel pulled by the temptation to sin, and whatever your flavor of sin is, you can slow down and stop and go and be with Jesus and stay there asking him for strength of soul and the sobriety of mind that he himself provides. Jesus models a way that is better than just living in the hurt and hurry that shapes so much of life in our culture. He models it, and he invites his disciples into it as well. It is a constant invitation of Jesus to invite his disciples to slow down for solitude, to spend time with him. There's a moment where he sends his disciples out and they go out and they do ministry and it's really successful and they come back and Jesus is celebrating these things with him but he looks at them and he says, hey, come away with me so that we can go and rest. Come come away with me. It's the constant invitation of Jesus to come and rest and get away for, for a little while to the remote place, which again, is that word, eramos. Over and over and over, we see this invitation of Jesus to his disciples and to us to come and get away with it. So Let me just talk again to the room, just really briefly. Um, talking to everyone, because in a real sense, all of you are leading someone somewhere. Uh, there are times when sharing the gospel, following Jesus, any of this is exhausting, where it can take time and effort and labor, physical, emotional, spiritual expenditure, that doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. It simply means that you are human and that you have limits. It can feel like you're in a season of people coming and going, meeting with people, events, all of it. But check it out. Jesus didn't wait for people to stop coming and going to tell his disciples to come away and be with him, to slow down for solitude. It's actually in the middle of that that Jesus says, let's get away. Jesus doesn't say, let's get away and play video games. Let's get away and and get a drink. Let's get away and go to that club or that. He doesn't say that. He says to his disciples, come and get away with me. Jesus invites his disciples to slow down for solitude, to spend time with him. And that sounds incredible, but if you were to continue reading this story, you'd actually see that they don't even make it away. Jesus looks at the crowd, he has compassion on them, and he begins teaching them and eventually miraculously feeds thousands of people. I love the realism of this story because there are times when you simply need to be alone with Jesus, but life happens to you. People happen to you. You're hearing this and you're thinking, I can't find any time at all in my life and my schedule to be alone. It's as if in this story, in this moment, you can see Jesus saying, me too. So you look at the end of the story. And immediately he makes his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismisses the crowd. After he says goodbye to them, he goes up on the mountain to pray. After a stretch of compassion and ministry to people, Jesus returns to emphasize solitude. He sends the disciples off in a boat where they would be able to be alone and rest along the way. And then Jesus goes up on the mountaintop and prays through the night. It's this constant reality. He's saying over and over and over again, come and be away me come and be away with the father and here's what's incredible about the life of Jesus the busier or more full his schedule and life got the more often we see him make time to slow down for solitude Where usually for us it's the exact opposite a quiet place of solitude can be the first thing to go rather than the first thing that we go to and that's wild because in the craziness of busyness and hurry what we need is to slow down for solitude to meet with Jesus in the quiet place, in scripture, in prayer, to dwell with him, to bring sobriety to our minds and strength to our souls. So we see it in the life of Jesus. How do we do it? Here's where I'm gonna get super practical. Five thoughts for you real quick. I'm gonna give you one more idea and then I'm gonna take my seat. Number one, we need to acknowledge our need for his strength that he offers in solitude. We just need to say like, okay, I need that. Like we just need to start there. If you don't think that you need it, nothing changes, nothing changes, right? Like, like you will continue to experience what you always have experienced, nothing will change because you're not pivoting. You're not actually saying, I need that strength that comes from being with him. To know him and to go with him starts with our need for him. Number two, we follow Jesus better together. Solitude is an interesting practice because we do it alone and we do it together. It doesn't mean that you're with someone when you're alone with God, but doing it together might mean that you have someone else that you're talking with about slowing down for solitude and they're doing it along with you. They're your backstop and you're theirs. You celebrate one another when you do it. You challenge one another when you don't. This could be a part of your connection group where you're just talking about what it's like for you to spend time alone with Jesus. Number three, you need to know your personality, your season of life, and your stage of discipleship. Here's the the thing that gets caught up in this, you need to not compare your time with Jesus with the person that is sitting next to you. You need to not look at it as, well, my friend spends an hour with Jesus every morning, and so I have to spend an hour with Jesus this morning, or I'm a failure. You just need to take the next step for you. If the next step for you is 10 minutes of reading the Bible and praying, if the next step for you is starting somewhere, attempting it somewhere, that's the right next step. You need to know where you're at and understand that Jesus will meet you there. Real practice will lead to real presence. Do what you can, not what you can't. Give yourself a ton of grace and go for it. I think some people think this is so overwhelming and so large sometimes that they never attempt it at all. But it actually costs less than you think and you get more than you than you dreamt. So start somewhere if you're starting. Maybe start small. Maybe you could do this, five minutes in scripture, five minutes in prayer, five minutes of like a worship song or something. I call that a fresh 15. I like that, right? So you could actually just start right there with that. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time and you're like, I want to spend more time away with him. Incredible. Do that. Take your next step. Don't compare your next step to the person that's next to you. Number four, when it comes to following Jesus, we need to think practice and not performance. Performance will crush you over time. Performance either leads to success or failure, which leads to pride or shame. And all of those moments of pride eventually lead to shame when you miss one day and you crush yourself for it. Performance and following Jesus will crush you. Practice. Practicing the presence of God, practicing a preference for God, practicing experiencing life with God wherever you are, practicing solitude will shape and form your life as you get around and be with Jesus. And number five, if you say you follow Jesus, why would we look at the way that he lived and not do the same? If he got away to be with the Father, why on earth would we think that we don't need to? I love this picture of the life of Jesus it shows that clarity comes from the quiet place. Strength came from solitude. The invitation of Jesus to us tonight is actually to step into a new way, an unhurried way, a better way. And it starts by dwelling with him in solitude, in the quiet place. Um, Jenna, wherever you're at, you can come on, come on up. Um, when we spend time with, with Jesus, Uh, we can start to think sometimes why on earth, like do I get to actually like be with God right now? Why do I like get the, the gift, the grace of this moment? And here's the reality. It is because of what Jesus Christ has done as the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father, that we actually, when we come to spend time with Jesus, when we come to spend time with him alone, we do not come on our own works, we do not come on our own accord, we do not come on our own merit, we come in the path and in the way of Jesus. That Jesus has actually gone first and we simply follow him. It's as if Jesus turns around and looks at his Father and says, do you see her? She's mine. Do you see her i died for her do you see that guy i died for him i rose again for him he's coming here to be with you he's coming here to know you he's coming here to go with you the beauty of solitude is that it is an invitation for you to actually grow in strength in the moments when you feel weak that jesus would say over and over and over again come to me all you who are heavy laden and weary and i will give you I give you a moment just here to, to respond I ask you to close your eyes wherever you are and, um, for some of you and that the what what you need actually is to see Jesus and what he's done on the cross you need to see how he lived this perfect life that you and I could never live he died this death on the cross for our sin he rose again to new life so that we, when we put our trust in him, might actually enter into, I love how Hebrews 4 says this, we might enter into his rest. And it's this eternal rest, it's this picture of eternal calmness and peace to be with him now and forever. Maybe the invitation to you tonight is to say, and I Sinner, I need Jesus. And the, the, the next step for you tonight, before you start trying to spend time with him first is to see him for who he is, Lord and Savior. Then immediately you can be with him, but in that moment, that's the first step for you is to see the gospel and to respond, to turn to Jesus, to put your trust in him as Lord and Savior. For others of you, you just need to take the next step and actually come to him again and again and again. Maybe you have, maybe you've had a practice of this, but you you haven't for a while and you, you almost feel like a guilt around this. I wanna ask you to just put that aside, bring that to Jesus and actually say, hey, I'm gonna master the reset and tomorrow I'm gonna start again. Right now I'm gonna start again. In fact, we give this time at the end of these gatherings, the end of these messages, um, not because it's some smooth way to transition or whatever, but because we actually want to give you time to be with Jesus here. So, however you need to respond, man, if it is that that next step of being, I really, need, I just, just whatever it is, you can actually come to Jesus and say, I, I, I just want to be. Maybe it's asking Jesus to remind you of what it means to be with him. Maybe, maybe it's asking him to help you as you spend time with him. Maybe it's asking you to asking him to, to put in you a new desire to be with him. As everything else feels like it's crushing it, that you would actually look to him and say, No, you're the one thing that's needed. However, you need to respond. I want to give you some room to do that even right now. And then we'll sing. We'll sing to the one who has lived this perfect life. We'll sing to the one who died on the cross. We'll sing to the one that we love. We'll sing to the one that we can be with. And as we're with him, he brings rest.